Hello. <laughs> this morning's scripture reading is from the book of Philippians, and it's on page 1163 in your pew Bibles if you want to look along. And we're, we'll be reading Philippians 3, verses 4 through 9. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Well, welcome again. So glad we're gathered here to open God's word to celebrate the truth of who he is and what he's done for us. Throughout the history of humanity, in fact, ever since the fall when Adam and Eve ate from the tree that God told them not to, and sin entered the world, we uh, have been faced with a common great temptation in our relationship with God, and that is this, to turn our relationship with God into a show, into a performance. And this is a temptation not only for, as we think about coming to Christ initially, becoming a Christian, but even more so in how we live every day as a Christian. The temptation to put on a show for God. We take something like worship. You know, responding to who God is, to what he's done, with humble, joyful, wholehearted service, whether it's serving God elsewhere, whether it's gathering with his people. We take something like that and we turn it into a competition. We fight to win God's affection by saying the right things, singing the right songs, using the right words in our prayers, or just being right, and, and offering a worship that's at least better than those people. It's interesting that uh, the first murder in history was a result of a worship war. God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's, and Cain got mad and killed him. So we turn worship into a competition to put on a show for God. We take something like reading the Bible. The beautiful privilege we have to open God's word, to reflect on who he is, to enjoy our relationship with him as he makes himself known to us in his word, by his spirit, and we turn it into a spiritual chore. So I just need to do my morning chores. You know, got to keep dad happy lest he, you know, get mad at me and do something bad later on in the day. So we basically turn reading the Bible into, we make it kind of function like a, like a pagan sacrifice where you know, my daily offering to an angry temperamental God so that he will bless my day or at least stay off my back a little bit. And if I don't do that, I'm in trouble. We do this with career choices. We do it with our parenting tactics. We do it with our family heritage and our own spiritual hard work. Our interaction with God becomes a show. So everything about us, who we are, 
what we do that we think will either make God love and accept us or at least will make others look like and think that God loves and accepts us because of who we are, what we do. And with this performance mentality comes all of the stress, all of the anxiety, all the fear and frustration, the anger and the pride familiar to competition. It says if we've confused God with Simon Cowell and Christianity with American Idol, and the irony is pretty thick there. So we, every time we come into God's presence, we fear that dreaded thumb down because we've not been good enough today. So we leverage our heritage and our status. We draw attention to our hard work and our strengths, and we conceal our weaknesses, our insufficiencies, clinging to all that this world considers to be gain in order to win and maintain the approval of God, or at least the approval of one another. This is, in fact, the the mode of operation for the counterfeit Christianities that Paul warned us about last week in Philippians 3, 1 through 3, the so-called Judaizers who held that faith in Jesus by itself was not enough to find right standing before God. You had to become Jewish also. You had to be circumcised. You had to follow the law of Moses. So it was a Jesus plus kind of Christianity. Jesus plus your works. Jesus plus your Jewishness. And it was rubbish. Paul will have none of this nonsense. And he won't allow us to either. And so he continues in Philippians 3, 4 through 9, our passage this morning, to remind us that taking hold of Jesus as Savior means saying no to all other would-be saviors. Because there is no gain in this world that compares to knowing and being counted righteous in him. Do you hear that again? Taking hold of Jesus as Savior means saying no to all other would-be saviors. Because there is no gain in this world that compares to knowing and being counted righteous through faith in him. So let's pray together and take a closer look at our passage. God, we do thank you so much for the joyful privilege of gathering, of singing to you, of opening your word. And God, we confess right now that some of us came here worried about what others were going to think of us when we arrived. We confess that when we were singing some of these songs, we weren't thinking about you. We were thinking about whether or not people could hear our voice for good or for ill. We were thinking about whether or not we liked this song. We were thinking about a whole lot of things other than you and your glory and your beauty. And God, we confess that, and we need your grace. And we thank you that that is what you have, and that is what is proclaimed to us in this passage this morning. So give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are ready to be changed by your Spirit as we look into your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Philippians, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, is all about God's vision 
for the church to be a community that is centered on, shaped by, and partnered together for the gospel of Jesus and its advance into the world. That's what Paul is talking about. It's all about what the church should look like when the gospel gets a hold of our lives. When we realize that apart from Jesus, we really are that sinful. We really are. That, that every one of us, we've all participated in the great human rebellion against God's throne. And no amount of hard work or family heritage will ever make up for it. Sin has to be dealt with. We are sinners and our sin has to be dealt with. It must be forgiven to be accepted by a holy God who's too pure to even let sin come into his presence and look on us. So, so we're sinners. And, and when we realize that, and then realize that according to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that there's forgiveness for that sin, that there's acceptance and cleansing found in Jesus, in what he's done for us, in his life and his death and his resurrection, when that gospel gets a hold of our lives, it frees us to love one another genuinely, to be satisfied in Jesus and therefore not in self or each other, and therefore to take the gospel to the world regardless of the cost. That's what Paul's after for God's people. In this book, he wants to make sure that we get this right, that we, that we see how the gospel changes everything. And so in chapter 3, he's going over this essential foundation of our partnership in the gospel and what's truly at stake in whether or not we are depending on, and when we say the gospel, we mean the good news of Jesus, his life, his death, and resurrection, Paul wants us to know what's at stake when we depend on that message, on what God's done, both as a church and individually. So he's going over that foundation in this chapter. Last week, in verses 1 through 3, we heard Paul's very strong warning against counterfeit Christianities, like that of the Judaizers. Again, it's a, a group of people who, in Paul's day, we're willing to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but who continued to teach and require that you had to become Jewish to truly walk with God. Circumcision law and all. We saw how a counterfeit Christianity was any version of the faith that tells us that trusting in Jesus and what he did on the cross is either unnecessary or insufficient, simply not enough to be in the right with God. But as Paul reiterated, our safeguard amid such counterfeits is to rejoice in Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. To find our, our full satisfaction and delight and significance and identity in Jesus. Because God's true covenant people are those who worship God by the Spirit, not by the flesh who boast in Christ, not in what we have done or where we come from, and who therefore put no confidence in the flesh, verse 3. But in verses 4 through 9, Paul continues this argument, further clarifying both the necessity of rejoicing and trusting in Jesus rather than self, 
in our relationship with God. He's continuing to clarify that. So he takes this temptation to turn our, our relationship with God into a performance. He takes that temptation head on here. First, by beating the Judaizers at their own game. And then, by dismantling the whole thing, says that the only thing left standing is Jesus and faith in him. That's where he's going. So, let's look first at Paul's would-be self-righteousness in verses 4 through 6. Here are these verses again. I'll actually start reading in verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness under the law, faultless. So, as Paul finishes describing what Christianity really looks like in verse 3, how it doesn't depend on the flesh, on our sinful selves, apart from Christ, who we are, what we can do, he decides to kind of indulge his, his opponents for a moment and to, to kind of play their game for the sake of argument. And it's important that he does this, actually, because you know, what he says in verses 4 through 6 shows that Paul is not disagreeing with the Judaizers by asserting that Christ is enough because he himself would otherwise fall short according to their standards. It's not some insecurity that he says, well, I don't meet their standards, so I've got to redefine it around this one. No, Paul meets their standards. He beats them at their standards, and it's still rubbish. And that's his point here. First, he mentions his circumcision on the eighth day. So he's going to list you know, seven demonstrations or exhibitions of how he's qualified according to their standards. The first four deal with his heritage, the last three with his hard work. The first one is circumcision on the eighth day. So Paul bears the mark of God's covenant membership under the old covenant under Moses. He had faithful parents who did their duty in getting him circumcised. Second, he comes from the people or the race of Israel. So there's a, a certain genealogical purity he has to his account. He's of the race of Israel, unlike some of these Gentiles or, or whatever. Third, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, the only tribe to remain loyal to Judah and the throne of David when the kingdom of Israel split after Solomon's death. In summary, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a perfect specimen of the Israelite heritage. And that's just from being born. He's done nothing yet. And that's the heritage he has. But now he goes on to talk about his own hard work. As to the law, a Pharisee. So, Paul was an expert in the Old Testament scriptures. And he was of the strict Pharisaical tradition, the most conservative of his day, in, in terms of knowing that law. He was trained under the famous rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem. So he's... He's worked hard at this. Then there's his zeal for God and the purity of his people. He was kind of a modern-day Phineas. You know, from Numbers 
25. Though Paul traveled the countryside, rooting out evil among God's people by persecuting the church. These new followers of Jesus who seemed to, to reject the law and allowed fellowship with Gentiles and so on. Paul showed his zeal for God and his purity by persecuting them. Finally, as to righteousness under the law, which is a better translation than what the NIV has here, legalistic righteousness, Paul was blameless. Now, that's a pretty bold claim. Blameless according to righteousness under the law. He's not talking about sinless perfection here, though. He's talking about as far as the law is concerned and following that law, he has kept it in such a way that he's offered the sacrifices necessary to deal with his sin, to atone for his sin. He's, he's followed the law. He's blameless before it. Even when he fails, he goes to the temple. He offers the sacrifices as the law made provision. So Paul has much that he could be proud of, much that he could boast in, much to his credit. A lot more than some of his opponents, no doubt. But what does he do with it? What does he do with it? What does he do with his status, his heritage, his hard work? Does he leverage it trying to win God's approval, or as the Judaizers presumed they could do? Does he use it for slightly lesser but more accessible things like impressing others. And what do we do with all that could be credited to our account as gain in this world and in the church? What do we do with it? Do we take confidence that since my dad's a successful businessman, or maybe he's an elder at the church, or since my mom taught Sunday school for 25 years, or since she, she's a, a committed Christian, well, therefore, I must be in good with God, regardless of what I believe or how I live. Do we take pride in our heritage? Do we take kind of a secret, subtle pride when, when we know the answer to the question in Sunday school and nobody else does, or in home fellowship? Do we look for praise when we serve God and get angry and bitter when no one seems to notice or say anything about it? Do we turn our relationship with God into a show, looking to who we are and what we do as our functional Savior? So, so I don't really need to trust Jesus as Savior if God accepts me for my Bible knowledge or for my humanitarian relief efforts, or because my kids are so holy and well-adjusted. We turn these things into our functional saviors. Is that what we do with our status? Now, there is nothing intrinsically wrong with being a successful businessman or having a godly heritage or working hard at obeying God. That's not the point. The question is, what do we do with it? Do we find our identity and our significance before God and man in these things? Do we expect God to either show his favor or perhaps withhold it based on how we live day to day, based on what gain we have? Well, Paul's answer uh, to what, the question, you know, what do we do with our gain? Paul's answer in verses 7 through 9 is very clear. There's only one thing 
that we can do with all that is to our credit when it comes to being accepted by God. That is to count it all loss for the sake of Christ. Paul begins by disavowing his gain in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit or gain, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. It's all those things I could take pride in. I consider it lost. But he goes further than that. He says in verse 8, What is more, I consider everything a loss. So not just my gain, but all my failures and insufficiencies. All of it is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord and being found in him. I want to get this right. For the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Verses 8 and 9. So Paul follows the pattern of Jesus from chapter 2, who did not count his status as God as something to be exploited for selfish gain, but made himself nothing. That's Paul's pattern. And here he does it with his own status and gain. Why? Why does he do this? Why is he so willing and eager to lose everything? I mean, you think about that for a minute. That makes no sense. I mean, you spend your whole life working hard at something, whether it's building a company or whether it's, it's building a godly heritage into your family or, or whether it's, you know, building a church. And, and you give everything you've got to it. Why is he so eager to say none of that really matters when it comes to standing before God? How is it that in Christ, loss is actually gain? Well, there's three reasons. First, because all the gain in this world cannot compare to the satisfaction of knowing and being found righteous in Jesus. Second, because no worldly gain is actually capable of winning God's approval and acceptance because it's unable to deal with our sin. And third, because to take hold of Jesus, you have to say no to all other would-be saviors. Only then can your righteousness really be found in him. We're going to look at each of those three. So first, loss is gain because there is no worldly gain that compares with being satisfied in Christ. There is no worldly gain that compares with being satisfied in Christ. Jesus told a parable of a man finding a treasure uh, hidden in a field. And he covers it back up, and he goes and he sells everything that he has in order to buy that field so that the treasure in it belongs to him. He lost everything in order to gain something more valuable. And that treasure is Jesus. That treasure is his kingdom knowing him, serving him, enjoying him as God's children. His purpose is the satisfaction and peace of, of knowing Christ. We find our identity and our value and our significance in what we treasure most. 
You think about that for a second. What you treasure most tells you how valuable you are. It tells you what your significance is. It tells you who you are, your, your treasure. And so what we treasure shapes how we respond to what happens to us in life. Think about the last time you got angry. Maybe this morning, trying to get out the door to church. You know? Why did you get angry? There was something that you wanted, that you needed, and somebody or something got in your way, and you got mad. Whether it's, I need into the bathroom and you've been in there 20 minutes. Or, you know, getting the kids to the car on time. Because we've got to be to church and we've got to be late. We're going to be late. I told you we're going to be late. We're going to be late. Or the, the car in front of you. And you're zooming around it and so on. And all of a sudden it's somebody else from the church or something. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you get angry? Something about who you are and your significance in life was caught up in and then thwarted in that moment. If your identity is vested in what others think of you when you walk in here, to what you look like, whether you had sufficient time in the bathroom or whether you were on time, then your joy and satisfaction in life will go up and down depending on whether or not life goes according to your plan. If my identity and significance is found in what you think of me when I stand up here and preach to you, then my satisfaction and joy in life will go up and down on here depending on what kind of emails I get after the service. But when we're satisfied in Jesus, when he is all our hope, all our joy, and our identity and our significance is in him, who he is, what he's done on our behalf to reconcile us to his father, to share his own identity and status with us as God's righteous child, and that's our joy, then there's no room left for self. Yes, we'll, we'll be slightly annoyed when we have to wait 20 minutes for the bathroom, and we'll be disappointed if we end up being late to church, but we're not undone. Because... Our identity isn't in what others think of us when we get here. It's in Jesus, in who he is, what he's done. And it's being satisfied in Jesus that frees us to say no to the would-be gain in this world and lay our lives down for the cause of the gospel. Loss is gain because no worldly gain compares with being satisfied in Christ. Second, loss is gain because only Jesus is capable of dealing with our sin. Only Jesus is capable of dealing with our sin. It's not uncommon when you're explaining the gospel message to someone, you're trying to help them understand their need for a Savior, to hear them say something like, well, I'm not really that bad of a person. You know? And sometimes they're kind of right. Compared to some people we know, you know, they're pretty polite. They're, they're very kind. They you know, might be serving on the school board or, or helping out at the homeless shelter. They keep up their lawn better than I do. You know, uh, they might even attend church every Sunday. 
it looks like they're doing pretty good. But we're thinking about righteousness, about being in the right with God, according to the wrong standard. If we compare a hundred different light bulbs in this room to one another, you're going to see some differences. Some of them are going to shine brighter, and some of them are going to look pretty dim. But if we compare their brightness to the sun, you get the point. The standard of holiness and righteousness before God is not each other. It's God himself. And before him, we all, fell, we all fall dismally short in our sin. And there's a penalty for that, for that sin, for that rebellion against God. And no amount of being good enough or hard work or family heritage does anything to address the sin. We need a Savior. Our sin has to be dealt with. And there's only two ways that can happen. We can pay for it ourselves in hell, or we can trust in Jesus, who took hell on himself for us on the cross. Sin has to be dealt with. And so our identity, finding it in all of these external things, doesn't do a lick of good before the throne of God. Only Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. That's the kind of righteousness that Paul wants. Not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So Paul knows that despite what the Judaizers were teaching, the law that God gave Israel at Sinai back in Exodus and and, and through uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the law that God gave Israel was never meant to be used as a means of manipulating God's favor. That wasn't the goal. That wasn't the point. It was given to them as instruction so they knew how to live as God's chosen, redeemed people. And it was given to them, Paul tells us elsewhere, to expose their need for a Savior. Because none of them were able of keeping it perfectly out of the flesh, out of their own effort apart from Christ. So, being declared in the right with God, being receiving that not guilty verdict before his throne, that's what it means to be declared righteous, to be acquitted of our sin and its penalty, that comes not from our own performance, but only through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Turning away from our sin, trusting in Jesus, as God's Son, what he did in his life, death, and resurrection to make us God's children and servants of his kingdom. Servants who obey not in order to be accepted by God. Servants who obey because, praise God, we've been accepted in Christ. And that brings us to our third point. Loss is gain. Because to take hold of Jesus as Savior means saying no to all other would-be saviors, including everything I pride myself in, in my heritage, and my hard work. This is probably the hardest part of the whole thing. You know, it's not that hard to understand that I'm a sinner. I've failed. And I can understand the argument that Jesus is more satisfying than anything else. But here is where I actually have to open up my hand and let go. 
this is where I have to ask myself and wrestle. Am I really willing to lose all other gain in this world to consider everything that I pride myself in as not worth what we flush down the toilet to give you the flavor of the word Paul uses here that our Bibles translate rubbish. To find instead my, my identity, my joy, and my hope solely in Jesus. Am I really willing to let go? To lose it all in order to gain Christ? Taking hold of Jesus means not only repenting of our unrighteousness, our sin, but also of our self-righteousness, our pride. Everything about us that makes us think God ought to love us and that others ought to make much of us. If the mathematical equation of Christianity, as one author has recently put it, is not Jesus plus something, whether that's Jesus plus works, or Jesus plus Judaism, or Jesus plus this kind of music, or Jesus plus perfect kids, or Jesus plus this doctrine, or that ritual. If it's not that, but rather Jesus plus nothing equals everything, then we need to be okay with losing everything in order to gain Christ. And that means we have to put away the performance. We'll make sure you heard that. We have to put away the performance. For some of you, that's pretty difficult news. Because you're not sure you're really ready to lose everything for Jesus. And give the credit to someone else. And so you need to repent of your self-righteousness. And recognize that all you have before the throne of God is Christ. For others, this may be the best news we've heard in a long time. Because it means you no longer have to play the game. It's no longer wondering and worrying about what others think. You know, all the, the fear of that, all the guilt and shame that you have learned to hide so well when you interact with others. All the frustration at your own insufficiency, the weariness of performing, the dread of failure, you can lay it all aside because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And some of you have to say that to yourself over and over again to really begin believing it, that Jesus is enough. Praise God, all we have and all we need is Christ. And he's enough. Now, yes, God wants us to obey as his children and his servants. This is not about, well, it doesn't matter what I do now. God wants us to obey, but he wants our obedience to come out of a joyful gratitude of what he's done for us in the gospel, not as something in order to win his favor and either keep him on our good side or make up for it when we seem to be on his bad side. Our obedience flows out of joyful gratitude to Christ. 
And so we need to rehearse to ourselves daily the transforming truth of the gospel. That though our sin really is that sinful, God's grace in Christ really is sufficient to deal with our sin and to change our lives by the power of his spirit according to his word. Do we believe the gospel? Do we believe that there is nothing we can do nor need do to win the affection of God, but that Christ has done everything necessary to reconcile us to him? His invitation is simply to believe and to follow him. Do we believe this? And if so, do we live like we believe it? Which is even harder. Or do we turn our relationship into a show? Do we treat God's grace as less than sufficient, spending our days in in a quiet desperation, hoping that God pays more attention to our good days than our bad ones? Do we continue to hold on to things other than Jesus, not quite convinced of his superior value or or hedging our bets on backup saviors in case the Jesus thing doesn't work out? Or do we live in the joy and freedom of knowing that our greatest problem in this world has been dealt with through Christ? That by God's grace we stand before him clothed not in our own righteousness but in the righteousness of his son, Jesus on our worst days, and on our good days. And that through faith in him, the greatest treasure in this world is ours forever. Do we believe that? Are we free? May God rescue us from ourselves and from all would-be saviors, and may we know the surpassing joy of knowing Christ and being counted righteous in him. Let's pray together. Lord, there is nothing more difficult than dying to self. There's nothing more difficult than admitting either that we're wrong or that we're weak Or that as good as we are, it's still not what you're looking for. Still stained by sin. God, help us, as Tom encouraged us earlier, to take our eyes off of ourselves and what we do and what we think and to put them on you. Help us put our eyes on Christ find our full identity and joy and significance in knowing him and being clothed in his righteousness. And may that, may that affect how we respond to life. May we not need to fight for control or throw our hands up in despair when life doesn't go according to our plans because we have a sovereign God who is in control and who is sufficient to work all things out for his purposes. God, may we take our joy in you. I pray that for my own heart, all of the idols that crowd you out, I pray that for every heart here, God, 
may your spirit and your grace wash us, strengthen us, make us fit for your service through the mercy of God.